Hello and welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Unshot.net. In this week's episode, I'll be wondering, how did we let the education system get infiltrated by Tusla and how many trees will need to die before we say stop? But before all that, here is this week's news. The big news in the uh, papers this week, which is grabbing the headlines, is all about uh, autism charities who are complaining about the lack of provision for pupils with autism in schools. Uh, The groups which are representing children with autism um, are blaming the state. Um, This is obviously on foot of the news that uh, there are over 90 children um, waiting for school places. Uh, in one postal area in in Ireland, that's in Dublin, in Dublin 15, one of the fastest growing places in uh, in Ireland. And uh, naturally, the um, autism groups are blaming the state uh, for this failure. And of course, the state is taking full responsibility for this complete failure to properly support special educational needs in this country and has apologised for the countless cuts to services for children with special education needs and has promised to improve facilities to ensure new classes will open for children with autism. Yeah, of course they have. No, 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 no. What Minister McHugh has done is he's blamed schools. He's, this is what he said in the papers. He has urged school patrons and boards of management to do more to fulfil their obligations to provide specialist school places for children with special needs. Now, as part of this um, podcast series, I have to mark whether there's any explicit language in my um, in my podcasts. And it's, 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 it's very, very difficult to do that right now. Um, but so that means I better move on before I ruin my clean PG certificate. Anyway, I won't move too far away because I'm moving on to the NCSE, the National Council for Special Education. They've started leaking some of their revolutionary, that's their words, not mine, new ways to support children with additional needs. Uh, their first year of their pilot uh, has been going on uh, where they've been directly uh, working with therapists in schools and that's coming to an end. Um, basically, and they're hoping to expand this, basically. Uh, and to me, I was reading these uh, these ideas um, about you know the schools identifying children who will need speech and language therapy and all and, and various other uh, therapies occupational therapy and it basically looks like we're going to be taking over the assessing of whether students actually require the sports and it's us who'll be letting parents know about the mad long 24 36 month waiting lists before someone in the hse is going to send someone into the school rather than the parents having to bring them there anyway i haven't heard anything as well i haven't heard anything extra about you know, new staff uh, being taken over because that's actually the problem. The problem is there isn't enough people working in the HSC um, to provide the care needs uh, for children that require uh, occupational. That's why there are waiting lists. Not nothing to do with schools. Like I, I don't know where schools and uh, got mixed up in all this. Um, because I, I mean, I wouldn't mind if this new pilot actually got new people working uh, in the system, but they're just using the same people. But now providing and now the schools are actually providing some sort of buffer or, or something i don't i don't really understand um how it's working this way but anyway i i don't think it's obviously if they're not uh, increasing the number of personnel working in the hse i'm not sure how possible it is that they're going to ensure any improvement um in the delays children are going to be seeing by uh, these relevant health professions 
Um, anyway, um, we're good to know. I, I suppose we're on uh, Minister McHugh's watch of his holidays. Uh, his bags are probably almost packed now for his trip to the United Arab Emirates because he's going to talk to teachers who have already told him exactly why they're staying out in the Middle East. Um, yes, um, Minister McHugh is going over to the Middle East, to the United Arab Emirates, to ask teachers, you know, what is it? What is it? Why are you not coming home? Uh, you know, why don't? Why aren't you teaching uh, back home? Um, he, he he already knows. Look, anyway, look, nice holiday, I guess. From um, we'll move on to the Irish Examiner because we we don't usually um I don't usually find stories from the Irish Examiner, but this was a good uh, a good st- a good uh, feature. Uh, that took place it was interesting to me um, it, uh, basically the Irish Examiner deemed it necessary to, this week um, to give advice to families who aren't flocking I use that ro- word appropriately I think uh, to take part in communions um, basically um, it's coming to May and I I don't really remember this when I when I wasn't a t- it's only, it seems to be a recent thing but May seems to be now the month of communions now probably it always was but it seems to be very hyped these days so I mean I don't think I'll be able to look at a my Facebook feed without seeing um, a com- a pictures of uh, people in communion outfits. Um, but anyway, I thought it was, it was a really strange article because it's an article that could only really ever happen in Ireland. Um, I think the journalist, anyway, who I'm pretty sure is, a, is an atheist, um, has suggested six alternatives to communions for children who aren't celebrating their communion. Um, one example is to, <laughs> is to go on holidays. Um, and... You know that's fine. There's lots of other exa- other other things like maybe you know showing up in a in a pretty dress or something to the to the church or taking part in some other way, uh, non-religious way in the ceremony by singing or something. But um, I thought that was quite a funny one. Just go on holidays. Um, but um, I suppose I don't know. I to be honest, I I I, th- I I actually can understand why this is a thing when you are you know when you're the only kid in your class. Um, that isn't making their communion even you know you're you're even though most of your class might not believe in any of it but they're doing it anyway but that aside you might be the only one it can be very it can be a very lonely place look you know personally i'm not going to be doing anything alternative for my son um you know for example we didn't do a naming ceremony when he was born because it just seemed to be an alternative to something religious and if we're raising him with no religion it seemed to be a bit pointless to replace the religion with something else um anyway not not having a religion kind of lets you have the freedom to do whatever you want. Um, although from what I can see, having a religion doesn't seem to restrict too many peoples from the same freedoms. But in any case, I can imagine, you know, as I said, being the only child not making the communion in a classroom. And that might surprise some people. But it's really, really common to be the only, not only the only child in a, cl- in a classroom not making your communion, but the only child in a school who will never make their sacraments. Um, and... Um, I can see why these alternatives idea might be useful to them. However, to me, yes, it is a little bit mad. The Irish Times reported on a school um, whose insurance costs have gone up by over 700% in the last couple of years. This is an extraordinary increase in premium, obviously. I mean, that's crazy. Can you imagine if your car insurance went up by 700% in a couple of years? But the majority of schools' insurance premiums definitely have doubled in the last four to five years. No extra funding has been given uh, to schools from the Department of Education to cover this shortfall. And minority patron bodies are definitely the worst hit. I, I, uh, there's these group schemes going on. with the uh, There's only one insurance provider in Ireland for schools. And basically, they used to be the insurance provided for churches and their buildings. So basically, if you're a minority faith group you're um, or a minority group, uh, non-faith group, um, or you're a minority patron body like the Gwales Gunner, you actually pay more for your premium as a school, slightly more for your premium as a school, uh, which is, again, something a bit mad, uh, considering the Department of Education 
give us exactly the same uh, level of uh, capitation grant to cover it uh, or not cover it as the case may be. Um, but I think, I, I look, I know insurance, rising insurance costs are a problem across the board and that has to be tackled. I mean, something has to be done to change this or the Department of Education are just really going to have to fund schools more money to cover the increased costs. For example, in my school, uh, our insurance has doubled in the last two years. I mean, I, I have, we don't, we don't, we don't get extra funding for that and uh, it seems really really crazy that that's the case anyway final piece of news is abroad in florida where a law has been passed to allow teachers to arm themselves with guns in schools i know this has uh, been a story that uh, doesn't obviously affect ireland but uh, i suppose it's, it's it's relevant as an international story um i mean i think it might be safe to say that the that our union the into uh, might actually for once direct its members not to comply with something uh, like this but look, it's just, to be honest, it's awful to see how crazy America is getting. I mean, this story was, um, this particular story, by the way, was uh, published in all newspapers in Ireland as, as an education uh, piece. Um, I took, um, I, I looked at the journal's um, approach uh, to it because I love their infamous comment section. Um, and, and you know, actually, to be honest with you, I was, I was kind of glad to see that almost it was unanimous uh, that people were, were obviously against uh, teachers um having guns in the classroom however f- for whatever reason you know almost half of the comments were against it because and i quote until a teacher rem- uh, until a teacher go- loses it and goes on a shooting spree like like seriously like <laughs> what's wrong with people that they think a teacher is remotely likely to do this like that that, that we're, we're just so completely um biz- you know on 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 edge or uh, unhinged or something you know i i mean obviously i'm not condoning guns at all for teachers but what other job at all in anywhere where people are armed would this even be considered the biggest risk that they might go a bit nuts and then start shooting everybody going a big shooting spree like like for example you know guardy you know go you know uh oh gosh don't arm don't arm the armed guardy just in case one of them goes they go crazy and go on a shooting spree don't arm some guy in the army because in case he goes crazy and goes on a shooting spree you know or, or whatever you know I, I look you know I mean I, I, I just find the anti-teacher thing very funny uh, in many ways and I was but to be honest I was really really disappointed actually that there was no comments in the journal there where um, there were any comments about how uh, about the Florida teachers holidays and their cushy pensions <laughs> Uh, thanks as always for the comments, shares and likes from last week's podcast about uh, the Minor Works Grant and the INTO Congress review. Uh, funnily enough, I didn't have too many comments about the Minor Works Grant. Um, I guess before I became a principal, I actually didn't even know it existed. I, I didn't know about any of the grants really. I just thought, um, to be honest, in, in, in my innocence, I thought schools uh, uh, didn't uh, get these grants and the government paid for everything. Uh, but... Um, there were some uh, comments I'll write about the uh, INTO Congress, quite a lot of them. Uh, just so you know, this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify and pretty much every other podcasting app you can find. All you need to do is search for either onshot.net or if I were the Minister for Education or both um, and you should find it there and then. Um, I'd really, really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast uh, in, um, platform you use uh, because every episode will then be immediately available to you after its release. I'd also appreciate any reviews you might give uh, preferably good but if you have to you can leave any review so the um, so other primary schools around the country will be able to find uh, the podcast a little more easily 
One of my least favourite questions that I hear, and it's often asked to celebrities, was which teacher was the biggest influence in your life? I imagine if there was a survey done, I'd say second level English teachers which feature very heavily uh, in the answers to this question because it's mainly writers and actors that are asked um, that question. And who else in a school gives their students their first taste of Shakespeare or Brian Friel or Emily Dickinson? However, on the off chance it isn't someone involved in the literary or arts or acting world that is asked, the answer is usually a teacher that did something a little bit different and took a bit of a risk. I've never been asked this question, which is not exactly the most surprising thing because I'm not a Hollywood actor. Um, so I'm going to totally take advantage of this podcast and pretend I have been asked. Honestly, I, I will get to the point of this podcast, which, uh, by the way, is all about school completion program. There will be a link. You'll love it. Uh, this could end up being the greatest segue ever. I can guarantee it. Um, anyway, to be honest, if I ever do get asked this question, I'm go- I, I will find it hard to answer it. Um, all of my teachers, I have to say, firstly, would be a little bit put out to know that none of them actually influenced me to become a teacher. I, I actually fell into teaching by accident, uh, which I think I've uh, spoken about in a previous podcast. However, I'd like to think they all influenced me in some small way, whether that was by a small positive action or by a small negative experience. Um. Now, I'm not copping out here. I will give you my, my, my teacher that did influence me, I promise. But from one of the previous episodes, you know, for example, <laughs> I could technically commend my junior infant classmate um, who chased me around the classroom on the first day and scratched me on the face. That helped me to run faster in my life, I'd say. Maybe. I'm only joking. And in fairness, I did have one English teacher, I do write, who did believe I could write. But I don't think I could credit her for my poetry collection. Uh, that accolade actually goes to somebody else. However, if I was only allowed to pick one teacher, for me, it was someone who not only influenced me, but it was someone who completely set the entire culture of the school I went to for the time that they were there. I went to a small school in Dublin. Um, it's, it's the only Jewish school in the country and there are roughly 100 children in it. Very, very few of them Jewish, actually. Um, but as I remember it, there were either four or five class teachers in the school. I think there were four. And I generally had the same teacher for two years each time. Pretty much like every other four teacher school. I think the fifth teacher might have been um, a floater, floating teacher or maybe just the, the uh, ratios are a little different at the time. One teacher in that school uh, was called April Cronin. Um, and she had a passion that was the game of chess, of all things. Uh, she taught me in third and fourth class and she was also the school's chess coach now can't be underestimated just cannot be underestimated underestimated the influence that she had on this really tiny small school in terms of the game of chess chess while she was there was to stratford college and stratford national school as rugby is to blackrock college that is the level of influence me i lived chess when i was in primary school i would go to my friend's house just to play chess I would go to bed and I would read chess theory books to try and learn new ways to beat my opponents. I wanted nothing more than an electronic chess set for Christmas so I could play, so I could even play when I didn't have a human being in the same room. At some point in um, almost every child 
in Stratford National School had a working knowledge of the game, which is really interesting. Almost every single child in the school. And some of us, well, let's just say, during her time, the school's chess team won the Leinster School's Chess Championships almost every year for about a decade. And they also won the All-Ireland Championships on a number of occasions. Many of us individually won All-Ireland titles, including myself, and some of us represented our country internationally. One or two of her team went into adulthood, winning competitions around the country and beyond. I was the captain of the school chess team, which I do realise is social suicide, by the way, (laughs) when we won the All-Ireland Championship. And that gave us opportunities we definitely wouldn't have got at the time. Uh, And we would not have even realised it or respected it at the time. We appeared in the national media, on TV. Um, But I mean, if I look back on that, that must, that surely must have shaped me and must have shaped us all. And being relatively good at chess taught me a huge amount. I can actually remember clear lessons from playing chess. Sit on your hands. Write down every move you make. Shake hands after a game when you lose. Be modest when you win. Don't leave your seat during a game. However, I remember other moments which must have shaped me. Looking back over the games I played and analysing each move and what I could do. So lots of analysis, analysis and trying to figure out what would have been a better way of doing things and sitting down and studying that. Really, really having that passion for looking at each move, seeing what I could have done better. Really important lessons that you can obviously easily put into other areas. I also remember finally beating April in a game of chess. She, uh, she was a very good chess player herself. And I remember her reaction. And her reaction was not a negative reaction, which, is, <laughs> which, which uh, for an 11-year-old might, might, might have been too much. But her reaction actually was very important. And it was very much saying, look, you've done it now, Simon. You can beat me. You can beat me. You are now better than me. I, that's, this, is, this is what you can do now. Now we need to move on. And she encouraged me to join... Um, a chess club uh, outside of the school um, where not only could she keep coaching me in school but could pass on uh, pass me on to another group of adults uh, which I duly did I also remember in third and fourth class I, I remember actually when she was my teacher I remember trying to finish my work extremely quickly so because she used to have tons of chess puzzles uh, piled in the um, <laughs> I suppose what would be now known as an early finishers pile and I would have uh, loved trying to solve all these, uh, sol- uh, make checkmate in five moves or whatever it might be. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make was that April Cronin had a passion and everyone in the school became part of that passion. Every student, I'm pretty sure every student played chess. Every student was proud of our chess achievements. I know chess back in those days was not the coolest thing to do but we were proud of our chess achievements our parents were proud and they were very much involved they were driving they drove us here there everywhere and chess was our lives and it wouldn't have happened without her it definitely wouldn't have happened without her and sure enough when april left to, to left the school to take up a new position as a principal within a couple of years chess and stratford were no longer synonymous with each other stratford wasn't the desh school and therefore wasn't part of the school completion program However, St. Agnes' School in Crumlin is. Now, why does that school sound familiar? In 2006, led by their principal, Sister Bernadette Sweeney, she had a passion too. It wasn't chess. It was music. Sister Bernadette had learned music from a very early age. She'd learned piano, guitar, drums, and most importantly, violin. And she was teaching a small group of children in the school, violin, when she noticed a few heads looking through the door every so often, 
you know, you know that rubbernecking kind of thing. And after a while, she did an assembly or something. I don't know what, I don't know how it came about, but she asked, she went, maybe she went around the classes and asked, who might be interested in learning how to play the violin? Now, cast forward a few years later, the violin in St. Agnes's is basically the chess of this school. I remember first seeing this collective at an IPPN conference and the absolute um, brilliance of these primary school kids from a Desh school. Now, it doesn't matter they're from a Desh school. It kind of, I suppose it kind of does um, because Sister Bernadette is actually famous for saying it's kids in Fox Rock that play the violin, not Crumlin. And in some ways, I suppose that's the point, you know. And I, I guess that 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 that, that is a that's an it, it's going to lead into the podcast here, really. Much like nobody would have played chess in my school without April Cronin, Sister Bernadette created a culture in Crumlin from her own passion. And you know what? No child has to spend a cent getting these violin lessons. And where did that money come from? Well, their website doesn't say exactly the source of the money. But I found information from a bit of research there from uh, the St. Pat's did some research, which claimed that the school completion programme would have provided some funding for this project. Now, albeit the, um, now the context wasn't exactly uncritical when they were doing this, but money certainly had to have come from the school completion programme for Sister Bernadette's plan. 400 pupils have weekly violin classes in St. Agnes's. That's, in, that's this year. 400 pupils are learning how to play violin right now. Second level students, it doesn't stop, carry on playing and they have weekly lessons in the school after school. And it's even reached further afield and there's a parents orchestra and there's actually a community centre dedicated to arts and music in Crumlin, in that area. The group have performed all over the world and they performed several musicals. Sister Bernadette's passion has created and continues to develop this culture. Even though she's retired, she's still involved and still going strong. The school's website explains the benefits of the scheme, of course, because obviously if you're going to justify having uh, buying violins and teaching children how to play them, they have to have benefits. So the children, basically, this is, the, this is their own words, the children gain confidence through performance and gradually develop a sense of their own contribution to group and with that sense of commitment and increased self-esteem. In a very short time, both the project and the primary school orchestra have had some astonishing successes. I'm still quoting. Playing in an orchestra increases your memory skills, improves coordination, reading and comprehension skills. And there is much research to show how music helps both short-term and long-term in our lives. This is from there. Now, if Sister Bernadette wanted to start this scheme in 2019, I believe the school completion program door would have been closed in her face. Why? Because teaching children how to play violin is known, possibly is known as an inappropriate universal support and it is not evidence based. Yes, the school completion program has changed since its inception, which allowed for ideas from local people with passionate ideas. But it's now been eaten up by the juggernaut that is Tusla, who overnight grasped it out of the hands of the schools. We're going to look how, at how a brave and interesting scheme that was started in 2002 where local needs could be targeted in hundreds of different ways slowly but surely was smothered by bureaucracy, jargon and narrow thinking. How did a scheme that was such a bottom-up approach almost overnight flip to become a top-down organisation where children stopped being children and became data to be manipulated? 
As we go through this episode, I'm going to try and chart how this happens and what we're actually going to do about it. However, I suppose if I were to sum up everything uh, for the purpose of this podcast, if I were the Minister for Education, I would be rebooting the school completion programme. I don't want to get too much into the history of the school completion programme as it isn't really that relevant. But suffice to say, it's just a brief summary for the start. It's been around since 2002, so it's almost 20 years old. And in terms of structure, just to give you some context, because a lot of people don't know about the school completion programme, there are only about 400 schools in the country in part part of it. Uh, There's 124 projects nationwide, so in over 400 schools. And there's a local management committee in each project area put together, and they put together annual retention plans. So these are uh, plans to um, help children who are at risk of early school leaving. Now, each project has a local project coordinator who leads the development and implementation of the programme in consultation with the National Coordination Service under the direction of a local management committee and in consultation with the school principals. So it's a big, big um, organisation. In other words, there's numbers of layers from national uh, level down to the schools levels. Now, in fairness, there's nothing really wrong with that, especially because back in the day, the idea was that the programme was based on what was called a bottom up approach. This You can see this in the literature if you want to find it. Um, And this is uh, just quoting it uh, at the time. Different supports were offered in each cluster depending on local needs in recognition of the fact that local factors can influence early school leaving. And that's the exact wording of the aims and principles of the school completion programme published by them in a leaf less than a decade ago. As I've said before, the main aims of the school completion programme are the retention of young people in in the formal education system up to the completion of the leaving cert and to improve the quality of their participation and their educational attainment um, in the education process. Now, it also aims to offer supports to primary schools and post-primary schools uh, for the prevention of educational disadvantage and to influence it in a positive uh, positive way. And policies are relating to the prevention of early school leaving, not just reacting to it, to the prevention of it. How do we prevent children from um, leaving school now the likelihood is most children don't leave primary school don't leave primary school they generally leave school or after their junior cert if they're going to leave school at all because obviously it's against the law to leave school so what do, can we do in primary schools to prevent children in the future about a decade later from leaving school early I think um it's important to note that up until recently, the programme was was preventative in nature and young people at risk of early school leaving were supported from a very early age in recognition of the patterns of early school leaving. And basically they start young. You have to start young because if you don't, the um, children, are, are children are more likely just to leave school if their supports aren't met when they're very, very tiny. Pretty much up until 2015, this is just the way it worked. Schools identified needs within their school. They let their communities know what they needed and this would generally happen. While schools couldn't do whatever they wanted with the money offered by School Completion Programme, a booklet uh, with suggested activities was published. Now, this booklet was 26 pages long with hundreds and hundreds of activities, as far ranging as academic support, such as literacy programmes, to giving one to one time out support to, to, to support, to activities such as needlework, yoga, hairdressing, pottery, art therapy, film work, homework clubs, breakfast clubs, and many, many, many more. In fact, it was hard to find something that didn't actually fit into School Completion programme. However, in most cases, it worked pretty well with some good projects going on around the country, including St. Agnes's Violin Project. 
Then in October 2015, a research paper called The Review of the School Completion Programme was written by uh, a number of academics, the most famous of those is Emer Smith, who writes most of our, most educational um, uh, papers. But uh, Emer Smith, Joanna Banks, Adele Whelan, Marik Darmody and Selina McCoy. And that was published. And it was almost 200 pages of, uh, of research and nicely condensed, uh, thankfully, because I'm not going to read 200 pages in, a we- uh, in less than a week. Uh, but they have a lovely executive summary. Uh, summary. And I'm just going to quote bits of it, um, which were very important. School completion programme is widely regarded as being an effective means through which to coordinate both in and out of school supports for the benefit of children and young people who are at risk of disengagement and early school leaving. So a compliment to the school completion programme. It did note, though, that there appears to be some variation between primary and post-primary schools in how school completion programme is being conceptualised, with primary schools more likely to emphasise school engagement and social and emotional supports, whereas at post-primary level, the focus is more on attendance and student retention, which makes absolute sense because very, very few children are at risk of leaving school at primary level. There is a much higher risk in post-primary. There is a very low, um, not, not a very... There's a, a lower risk of attendance in primary uh, problems in primary school because parents are generally responsible for children getting to school at primary level. At post-primary, ch- uh, the students have more, uh, I, su- I suppose, a power over their families of whether they will go to school or not. Anyway, the research goes on to say... Uh, that although there is much variation in the approaches targeting by clusters, the general approach used by schools taking part in school completion programme is effective. No problems. Ultimately, the research was not critical of the programme, though it did say there was some variation in it. That's it. To me, this says that most of the programme was working fine, though there were probably a few clusters that may have needed a bit of support. It would then make sense to support these clusters, I suppose, if that was the case. No? Well, in came Tusla with their strategic planning and other business speak cliches. Yes, they had some blue sky thinking and ways to push out envelopes, of course, going forward. Rather than having any trust in the bottom-up approach that was generally working well, Tusla, clearly not used to such an approach, decided something must be done going forward. So, going forward, they decided to take over school completion programme going forward and turn it into its current form going forward. Yes, a few months ago, school completion uh, programme schools woke up to a new dawn. The school completion programme had been renamed. The school completion programme will be soon known now as the Form Completion Programme. No, it's still the School Completion Programme. Yeah, because, you see, schools who used to be trusted uh, to be able to identify children most at risk and then work with project workers to design interventions, which generally could be put in place almost immediately, now have to fill in loads and loads of forms and then wait for support. Now, Tusla must obviously have been very unhappy with the efficiency. So they've designed this form, right, to ensure that any child at risk will have to wait up to three months before any intervention can be put in place. Now, the form, which goes on for, oh, about seven to eight pages, asks schools to fill in all sorts of information about the child, their family, their personal circumstances and so on. It's very intrusive. The The form takes at least an hour to complete and up to two hours, depending on the circumstances. And if a school requires a project worker to work with five children, you have to do one individually for each one. So it's about five to ten hours of paperwork before anything even starts. However, it gets worse. Filling in the form doesn't actually get you intervention. 
you know, that would be, well, it wouldn't be fine, but it would be, it would be okay. No, the forms go off to a local committee who process these forms and give them points. You actually get scored based on what you write, based on a standardised, standardised score sheet, which is very arbitrary. And these meetings only take place, and this is, this is when they take place, every so often. Now, and after that, a school will learn if they've scored enough points to get intervention. So every so often, some group of people who score it up, your ticks and your narrative, and um, then, you, then you, you may get intervention. And just for the record, there are no teachers or principals on this committee. But there's more. No, this doesn't end there. The findings of this committee don't actually go back to the school. So you, they say, well done, you've scored enough points, go ahead. No, they go to another committee to be given approval for school completion program intervention to begin. By this stage, three months could have could have passed at least, and these vulnerable children may have already been referred to Tusler for child protection reasons, or they'll have even fallen further behind where they could have um, where they could have been if it weren't for all this silly box ticking bureaucracy. Naturally, when Tusler were organising this form completion program, they didn't bother checking with school uh, school principals uh, who were actually going to be taking on all this extra pointless paperwork. Um, however, Tusler have form when it comes to form filling and pointless paperwork. Um, they're, they're very good at it. They, they, they've been doing this for quite some time, maybe kind of behind the scenes and we, we haven't kind of noticed it really up until now. Tusler appear to hate they, do you know what they hate? They hate trees. They absolutely must despise trees so much. It seems that any intervention now requires lengthy forms of paper forms. They're not even online forms. Forms to access anything, anything at all. A couple of years ago, schools learned that they now have to fill in two forms uh, to have uh, an educational welfare board uh, person intervene where a child has poor, uh, poor attendance. I'll just tell you what happened. Uh, when I started off my job, if a kid missed 20 days of school, I rang up my uh, education welfare board of the EWB officer and I said, hi, um, hi there. I have this child who's missed 20 days. Oh, she she would say, what's the name and number of, uh, of the of the parents? And I would say, here it is. And then she would ring them. And she'd take over. That was it. Now I have to prove that, that I have done all these loads and loads and loads of interventions, uh, record them, fill in a form. And then a second form with, with more information. I have to fill in my school details twice for some reason. I have no idea. This is probably because one half of the form goes to one person in the in the uh, in in some office, and the other form has to go to someone else in the office, and they couldn't be bothered, um, you know, figuring that one out. But anyway, um, the uh, where was I? I uh, Tusla, yes, they 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 head up the NEWB now. So basically, that's what changed. I used to ring the Educational Welfare Board. They, they ran their own business and then uh, Tusla took it over and this is why. Even general attendance reports are now the work of Tusla and they have silly amounts of paperwork. And one can guarantee basically if Tusla are involved in anything it's going to mean a hell of a lot of paperwork. Now Tusla are going to insist this is completely necessary. I mean I actually get it. I get it. I get it a little bit anyway. Paper trails and this kind of work that they do is very important. I get it. I get it. You have to have a paper trail. However, it can go way too far. If I have a child in my school that needs school completion program support, no matter what, a single piece of paper should be enough to get it. The old adage, if it doesn't fit on one piece of paper, it's not worth the paper it's written on. Now, I think that's an adage. And if it's not, I think I'll probably copyright it. I think it's a good one. Anyway, you get my point. And no, I don't mean they should move it onto some sort of online portal just to save the trees. No, no, I think no referral, no report, nothing should take more than a couple of minutes to do. It shouldn't take me more than a couple of minutes 
um, the same length as it might have taken when I picked up the phone to the EWB officer. That should be the amount of time it takes me to refer a child to any sort of process. Anyway, naturally, primary school principals around the country have been furious. Uh, workload is the single biggest issue for principals in Ireland. According to the excellent survey, if I do say so myself because I, I actually created it, uh, over 95% of principals are stressed by our workload. This is from the uh, National Principals Forum uh, survey in October 2018. TUSLA have effectively taken away their trust in principals to make a decision about targeting children at risk and they've thrown a large amount of additional work to the principal. Some clusters, notably uh, a couple in Dublin, refused to actually engage with the school completion programme after the change and they made representations to the school completion programme to actually, to TUSLA basically, to engage with them and they were granted a consultation which actually turned out to be a lecture and all of their concerns were treated with eye rolls um, and another thing they really need to work on is their body language by the way just when it comes to those sort of things anyway and denials and there were uh, and denials that there were actually any issues now since writing a Facebook post uh, a couple of months ago about this change I've actually been approached by several clusters that had supposed uh, had supposedly had consultations with the school completion program uh, person and the pattern is very very similar there's always been some weird mix up with transport and getting there I, I don't know how relevant that is but there's always been a mix up before the person comes down. Maybe it's just a coincidence. But at every single consultation, the speaker has said that nobody outside of that particular meeting has expressed any dissatisfaction with the programme, which is an absolute, which it's just a lie. The speaker has also said that, they've cons that they had consulted with all representative bodies and there were no concerns expressed. Also untrue. And when it's actually pointed out that this is entirely true, the person shuts them down, shouts them down, so is there anyone doing anything about it? Well, the INTO, the, uh, the union, are apparently listening to its members, which is marginally better than completely ignoring them, which has been their general tactic this, uh, these days. But in fairness to them, they went around the country to listen to primary school principals' concerns. And a report was produced by them and sent to all the relevant people that were there. Now, I was given uh, this report and I'm actually going to read most of it uh, for the purposes of this podcast and comment on bits of it. Because like most reports, it's reasonably long. Now, I'm going to take out uh, vast chunks of it but I am going to read um, quite a bit of it uh, so I, I'll let you know when I'm reading and uh, and then I'll comment so I'm going to read the first paragraph or so of the um, of this report the INTO held four meetings with schools involved in the school completion program the meetings took place in the regional areas with the highest concentration of school completion program Dublin Cork Galway and Letterkenny I, I was surprised by that. Anyway, the concerns raised by principals and teachers in relation to the changes to school completion programme vary dependingly on geographical and school context. For example, non-DESH and rural-DESH schools participating in school completion programme faced particular challenges as they didn't have access to the support of a homeschool community liaison teacher. Conversely, DESH band 1 schools in urban areas were impacted by the limitation on the numbers of pupils requiring a restricted number of targeted spaces. So... I suppose this um, that just sets some sort of context. It's grand, you know. So that that's all that is. But we need to get to the new framework here. So the report, basically, what the report was, it was categorised into various themes. I thought, um, and I think that was a very good idea. So each um, and and some of them are relevant to this podcast. And I'll just go through them. Um, and the first theme really was universal supports because this is something that's very very precious to the primary schools and is very much um, under threat by the new framework. So I'm going to uh, quote again. 
principals and teachers are asked to identify the school completion program activities which they deem to be the most effective in achieving the aim of retaining and increasing the numbers of young people attending school and in general principals and teachers reported that universal supports were the most successful approach as pupils with the most acute needs could be targeted in an equitable way without the risk of stigmatisation I think that's fair enough now carrying on Teachers cited breakfast, homework, after school and holiday clubs as good examples of supports that encourage attendance, participation and retention. I agree. There is general agreement that therapeutic and counselling services must form a central component of school completion programme as pupil attendance and participation in school can only be targeted once their basic psychological needs are met. That's also fair enough. Similarly, it's important that school meals continue to be supported under school completion programme to ensure fundamental basic needs are addressed. Now, that isn't relevant to a lot of Dash schools because that comes from a different source. But anyway, schools also reported that attendance and behaviour rewards uh, and initiatives may work well in some schools for increasing pupil participation. That's fair enough. And transition supports were cited as a crucial element. So moving into um, primary school and moving out of primary school uh, and basically supporting vulnerable pupils moving across the continuum of education to ensure they adapt accordingly and that they have a continuum of learning experience. Um, this is all fairly straightforward stuff and the reason it was brought up was because there is a perception that universal programmes like these are actually being frowned upon uh, somewhat in this new framework and they should be more targeted to individuals. That seems to be the way things are going if TUSLA get their way. Some schools uh, cited local projects such as arts and sporting interventions on a universal basis to successfully increase the attendance and the in engagement of pupils. In the absence of research on the effectiveness of otherwise the uh, uh, or otherwise of these universal interventions, schools were disappointed by the guidance given to the uh, by the Educational Welfare Service to discontinue these ones. So they were told they can't do them anymore, um, and that. That, that is disappointing. Teachers and principals recognise the value of individualised and targeted supports in some cases, but they should not replace the valuable universal interventions. I mean, I think this is the crux of everything here. We've been told that many universal supports are now out, but conflicting information is coming and going all the time. I don't actually know what I'm, what I'm allowed to do anymore, which is, which is quite worrying. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot of principals in the same boat. Anyway, teachers and principals are of the view that parents will be reluctant to also grant permission to include their child in school completion programme if supports are only given on a targeted basis due to the perceived fear of stigmatisation. And that's absolutely fair enough. I mean, can you imagine? I would I, I find it very difficult if um, someone came to me and said, a school completion programme worker came to me and said, listen, your kid's struggling and uh, struggling socially. Um, I'm going to take him out of class and do this, this and uh, this, this and that, uh, this, this kind of programme, Friends for Life, whatever it might be. Um, I mean, I, I could I could see how a parent might go, well, why don't you just do a social stuff within a group? Because isn't that how you socialize? Oh, well, I can't do that because it's an individually targeted program. Oh, so you're going to. St yeah. So you get the picture anyway. Um, clarifications also required as to whether universal intervention can be implemented in the early years of primary school with a more focused target sports at upper primary. So that is pretty much um, we pretty much the, the kind of message that we don't. We're, we're quite puzzled by what to do. And um it's very, very, very frustrating not knowing what, whether we can do something or not. The second theme was the actual intake framework model. Now, for the most part, teachers and principals expressed concern in relation to the referral and intake process, particularly around the referral intake form. And uh, there is absolute consensus that the updated form is needlessly bureaucratic, onerous and time consuming to complete with the language that was deemed inaccessible to some parents. Now, for me, this is another one of the key problems with the new framework. 
Uh, quoting again, the expectation is the homeschool community liaison teacher will support parents to complete the form and the HSCL teachers have reported that the level of sensitive details being requested of parents in the form is unnecessarily intrusive and some HSCL teachers have advised uh, that parents are sceptical about the form and they're reluctant to reveal such personal and sensitive data to an organisation external to the school, which is totally fair enough. Why would a parent give information to Tusla? What do Tusla mean to most parents? Child protection. What does that mean, child protection to most parents? We're going to take your kids away from you. The process of completing this form is considered to be potentially damaging to the unique relationship between parents and the homeschool teacher. And this is another key point, which I actually don't think I mentioned up until now. And um, fair play to the ITO for um, uh, getting that into the report. The HSCL teacher is all of a sudden now responsible for a lot of the data collection in school completion programme. They've actually been effectively forcibly employed by Tusla. It's, it's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre stuff. Anyway, it was in general, it was agreed that the form was a crude measure using numerical data to determine whether people required the intervention of school completion programme, which we've said before. And finally, and possibly the most important of all, there was widespread agreement amongst homeschool liaison teachers and principals that they felt excluded from this process. Um, principals are particularly disappointed they're not offered any professional development or any clear communication on the significant changes of the intake model and the referral process. Um, apart from supporting parents to complete the form, uh, the homeschool liaison teachers had no input as to whether the pupils should be targeted for SCP, which discounted their valuable insight into and their experience of families. And once the decision was made by the referral team comprising of an EWO and school completion programme staff, not schools, the homeschool liaison teacher was responsible for communicating often the negative outcome back to parents. So the people are making the decision don't have to go to the family and say sorry guys you didn't qualify because you didn't score enough points anyway the new approach was considered to be reactive as opposed to the universal approach which was more preventative which was the point of the school completion program the next um the next uh, uh, over theme is the role of the principal and here it says it was evident from meetings throughout the country that the principals of schools involved in school completion program felt entirely excluded from the new developments in school completion program the report gave some examples including the fact that there was not enough clear they were not clear enough about the rationale for the change nor were they made aware of the research underpinning the change in direction I haven't found it. I've looked everywhere for it um, and I cannot find any rationale for this change. The last thing was the 2015 ESRI um, report, which I mentioned before, which was actually quite positive about the programme. It wasn't, there, it said there were variations, but that's not a bad thing necessarily and it certainly didn't imply it was a bad thing. The key sentence came up next and this pretty much was the key sentence of this section for principals. It is the view of the INTO that teachers and principals must be central to any change process and consulted in a meaningful way from the outset. The next, and that 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 was the that is the sentence. We were never consulted. It just was landed upon us, and we didn't have a clue what was going on. The next theme anyway after that was the role of the homeschool liaison teacher which we've covered already so I'm not going to repeat that but the last, the next one here was governance. Now it's really interesting to note there was widespread agreement that the structures and clusters required a complete overhaul. Different clusters have different arrangements resulting in a lack of consistency and continuity from project to project. Um, I, I mean I, 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 could, I, I can't really relate to this very much I only know one project it's the one I'm involved in and it's a pretty good one as far as I, as far as I know I mean I, I've nothing to compare it to the effectiveness anyway of the local uh, management committees uh, varies greatly uh, with some work some of them working well and others being caught up in finance and employment issues again 
I, that's beyond me I'm just a member of the committee um, there was consensus that coherent structures must be put in place for provision of centralised supports to ensure principles are relieved from the bureaucratic overload that's obviously very very important and the roles of the various stakeholders on the committees must be clarified as, and the members must be made aware that the committees are, indem- are indemnified from liability I don't really know what that last sentence means but I gather basically anyone who's on the committee really needs to be doing something for that job um, anyway look I've quoted a lot from this report but just to basically summarise the people that showed up at these meetings summarise that this whole thing is a total mess. For me, although I have loads of concerns this has really come down to trust. Tusla do not trust principles to make decisions. I don't know if they trust anybody but they certainly do not trust principles to make decisions. They have now reduced our role to form fillers and before people claim that we're just lazy and whoever said that about teachers anyway every school wants to help the most vulnerable pupils in their school whether that's due to poor attendance or high risk of not completing school but no school needs to fill in a form after form so somebody in an office has something to do with their fingers now if a school believes a child is at risk that should be enough I'm sure we'd be willing to fill in a one-page thing to cover GDPR and all and all that kind of stuff, but the excessive paperwork required by Tuesday in order for anything to be done reeks of caring more about bureaucracy and data rather than children. The form completion programme, as I will call it until it changes, needs to be stopped and the focus needs to get back to children with immediate needs. I think back to Sister Bernadette and April Cronin. There's two examples of teachers who were trusted to allow their passion to shine. Although my school wasn't a Desh school or would have had any chance of being in the school completion programme, like most schools, many of us came from difficult backgrounds. I do remember playing against what would eventually be Desh schools back in the day. and But the thing is, if April or Bernadette had been part of the school completion programme now, they would not have been allowed to start their chess classes or violin classes for everybody. Because Tusa wouldn't have allowed them as universal supports. They would not be in the spirit, the current spirit of school completion programme. Risk takers like April and Sister Bernadette transformed their communities. In Crumlin, classical music is flowing through the veins of the community. It has undoubtedly made a difference. Yeah, I can still play a decent bout of chess, but most importantly, all the lessons I learned about taking my time, problem solving, recording my progress, being a good winner as well as a good loser, I'm sure have stood me in good stead. Imagine going to your job and only working with members of the same gender as you. Well, that's what tons of kids do every time they go to school in a single-sex institution. And what happens if you go to one of these schools and you don't identify as the gender of that school? On next week's show, I'll be wondering, is there any justification anymore for single-sex schools? As always, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform you're using. Please leave me reviews. And anyway, we'll see you next week. Take care and we'll talk to you then. Thanks a million. Bye bye.